Morning, everybody. Duncan Green here um, from the fragile and failed state that is Britain. Um, I suppose we better start with British politics. It's been the most extraordinary week. I mean, kind of mesmerizing meltdown in, 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 in certainly in the Conservative Party, the governing party. But it's got me wondering just how big and irreversible the impact could be. Um, you know, one argument is that this is just one party that's been in power for too long. It's run out of ideas. It's eating itself alive. And it will now give way to the other party because essentially we have a two party system in the UK. But when you look around Europe, actually, all these stable two, two party systems have have basically collapsed in the last decade or two. And I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that Britain's following. It's not clear how that will happen because our first past the post system really militates against uh, fragmentation, but it feels like that's the way we're going. Labour seems, the, the other party seems to think it's just gonna drop into its lap and we can go back to how things were. I'm not so sure. I think this might be bigger than that. Um, it might be a real you know, turning point in British politics and not in a way that's at all clear whether it's gonna be a good thing or a bad thing whether we're going to get coalition governments for the foreseeable future, whether you'll get more interesting range of ideas in politics, or whether it's just going to be an unholy mess and the government can't govern. So it's all well above my pay grade and I watch with interest, like I'm sure any of the, well, both Brits and non-Brits. I'm getting lots of um, messages from non-Brits saying, you know, are you guys okay? What's going on? You know, um, we are okay. We're still here. We still get up in the morning, have our muesli. Um, and then we watch the news. That's that's how it is at the moment. But we are in for a horrible time economically and a turbulent time politically, that's for sure. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say uh, about current events. I'm going to get on with um, the posts. So first post was links I liked, and I want to um, talk about a really good friend of mine, Harjun Chang, a brilliant Korean economist you've probably heard of. He's got a new book out, Edible Economics. Um, and he had the kind of flying start in terms of publicity that any author dreams of. He was denounced in the Daily Mail for wokery. There's a headline, Woke Cambridge Don claims the full English breakfast isn't British. Shocking. Um, a, he's not at Cambridge anymore. He's at SOAS, so nice work, Daily Mail. But also, it's pretty obvious that yeah, many of the ingredients aren't primarily British. But anyway, very happy with that. And uh, the book was launched this, uh, this published this week, and he's got a big book launch next week. It was book of the week on the BBC Radio 4. Um, it's, it's the ideal Christmas present. I will, of course, review it, and uh, I'm going to schedule a um, podcast with Hajun once, once it's all calmed down a bit. I think it's going to be big. His last couple of books have been absolutely massive, and he's really taking economics out to, and each one takes economics out to a broader and broader audience, and in particular, sort of heterodox uh, economics sort of um, that challenges the orthodoxy. And I think he's, yeah, he's just done a fantastic job over the years and he shows no signs of slowing down. So well done, Arjun, and we'll talk soon. Uh, next post was uh, an interview with um, another guru. It's a guru week, Wilf Mwamba in Zambia, who has for many years been incredibly insightful on this whole area of thinking and working politically. And I interviewed him for the Gelly influencing course I'm teaching, um, which I've written about on the blog and talked about on the podcast. 
Uh, and uh, I interviewed him on the role of analysis in effective influencing. And it's a podcast with a transcript. Um, he's currently, he worked for a long time for the uh, for DFID. Now he's working in the private sector. And this is a one of the 50 or so podcasts we've done for the Gelly program, but with Gelly's permission, I, I reposted it. So what do you do when, I don't really want to do a podcast about a podcast. So I'll just give you an excerpt uh, just for a flavor. But if you want the actual podcast, Go and listen to it. It's really good. So Will says, I asked him about all these tools we use for power analysis, stakeholder mapping and so on. I think tools are great, but sometimes we can focus too much on the tools and forget that what we really need is engagement with people, talking to people. Knowing what to ask is important and that's where the tools come in for me. But really focusing on engaging with the stakeholders is even more important because some of the original questions you might have may end up being not the best ones. So having an open mind and engaging, I find is much more beneficial. I think stakeholder analysis is important and you will not work in isolation. Names, people, institutions will come up. And it's really about just keeping a log as you go, picking up who's involved, who are the decision makers, who might be blockers who are impacted by this issue. I think this idea that you always have to be have a very specific, let's go sit down and do stakeholder analysis moment actually takes away from the everyday political analysis because we pick these things up from newspapers, from the news, from talking to people. And, and it, it was all in this vein, very thoughtful, very sort of um, confident approach to how do you use analysis to improve the effect of your, of your work. So I, uh, if you're interested in, especially governance work, um, uh, influencing institutions, uh, I, I urge you to listen to Wilf, he's a, he's a very smart guy. Okay. Next one up, my boss asked um, if he could have a post on the blog. What am I going to say? He's my boss, right? Um, it's actually very good. So this is Danish Raja reflecting on Oxfam's 80th birthday. We were set up in 1942. Um, and we was, and uh, I'll, just, I'll just read it out. It's very good. Eight decades after Oxfam began with a meeting in an Oxford church, we must respond to challenges our founders could not have dreamed of from reimagining what an international NGO should be to the need for totally new sources of funding to the world-changing impact of technology. One of my favourite bits of Oxfam history is a note scrawled in black ink in the very first minutes of the very first meeting of the then Oxford Committee for Famine Relief in October 1942. Side, side comment. That became Oxfam in the Telex address which was then adopted as the name for the organisation, if you ever wondered where Oxfam comes from. If you don't know what a telex is, look it up. Debating how to react to the looming famine in Greece being driven by Britain and its allies' wartime blockade on food imports, the scribble read, several speakers urged caution lest controversy be roused. In that single note scribbled in a school exercise book that you can still find at Oxford's Bodleian Library, we can see how so many debates over how to speak truth to power, how to deliver humanitarian aid, over the perils of being seen as political and what it means to be a neutral humanitarian are as fresh in the aid sector today as they were in that drafty Oxford church a full eight decades ago. Yet there are also debates, challenges and ideas pivotal to the future of Oxfam today that would never have occurred to the Reverend Theodore Milford and others in that idealistic and passionate first gathering. 
they would probably not have questioned the notion that they were doing what they were doing was saving those in need. They almost certainly wouldn't have seen at a time when the British Empire still held sway over much of the world, their attitudes as colonial. They would have had no inkling of the scale and transformative potential of technological change that was coming. Feminism, now at the heart of everything Oxfam does, would have been a novel notion. They would not have known as we know now uh, that people in the communities affected needed to raise their own voices and take control of their own aid to deliver real change in their lives. In this blog, I want to highlight three concepts that will shape Oxfam's future. Challenges that we'll need to address if we're to build on our founders' extraordinary legacy. First, we must reimagine and remake ourselves as part of a new decolonized network that can respond to global as well as local challenges. The old INGO model, a paternalistic charity in the global north saving lives in the global south, often dependent on official development assistance, crowding out local organisations and disempowering the very people it is supposed to help, has always been broken. Add to this the nature of the challenges. Add to this that the sorry. Add to this that the nature of the challenges is changing. That some of the most acute problems for humanity now, from COVID to climate to racial justice to inequality, have global aspects that demand global action. Many movements in recent times, the Arab revolutions, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, have had a sort of golden thread that runs across borders, even though they manifest locally in very different ways. Part of our job now has to be to use our convening power and connections to strengthen such global action. The People's Vaccine Alliance, which we supported, is a good example. Of course, supporting people living in poverty and facing local humanitarian crises wherever they live will remain at the heart of what we do. But the sector is now well aware that this must be done in a decolonized feminist way that shifts power, resources and agency to the affected communities themselves. Organizations like Oxfam are at their best when they support, amplify and connect local action. Interestingly, until the mid-1950s, we did all of our work through local partners, such as the Red Cross Societies or Jewish Relief or the YWCA, or even a local girls' education college in Greece. So can we reimagine ourselves, leave behind the idea that we take resources from the global north and give them to the global south? Our goal instead should be to become an energetic part of a truly global social justice network that speaks truth to power and that mobilises people and communities. Such network building feels like a natural step for Oxfam, which, rather than being the large centralised agency many people imagine, actually consists of many national Oxfams with their own rich and diverse histories. Organisations such as the Foundation for the Support of Women's Work, KEDV, a Turkish social enterprise NGO founded in 1986 that joined Oxfam, replacing a country office in 2019. Or Oxfam Colombia, which became our 21st affiliate in April 2021. I'm lucky enough to be CEO of just one of these affiliates, Oxfam GB, but I also have a long connection to another. Aged 11, I started fundraising for Community Aid Abroad, founded in 1953, which joined the Oxfam network as Oxfam Australia in 1995. Our diversified network feels more suited to the challenge of shifting power to communities than a centralised organisation headquartered in the Global North. Second big point, we need big new sources of money and new institutions to deliver it. A second huge challenge is that even as the world faces a proliferation of crises, it seems to have dwindling public resources to deal with them. 
The result is we seem to be simply raiding already inadequate pots of money to tackle new problems. British aid, aid budgets have already been cut before the conflict in Ukraine. And as Ian Mitchell of the, of the Centre for Global Development has observed, it looks as if the UK's generosity in supporting Ukrainian refugees will be paid for by lower income countries. Add to that fact, add to that the fact we can't assume economic growth will deliver extra resources as it did in the past for future generations. And it's clear that we need to come up with new forms of resourcing that aren't based on charitable donation. I've just come back from Somalia. There's a video of Danny in Somalia, which is in the midst of the, midst of the worst drought for 40 years, driving widespread hunger. The people I met there have done almost nothing to cause climate change, yet when climate disaster breaks, Oxfam and others must currently resort to begging donors to help us respond as famine looms. Instead, we need to tax those responsible for climate change. In other words, we need reparative justice, not charity after the fact. That might take the form of a windfall tax on energy companies or large food traders that, that goes into a global trust fund to pay for loss and damage a concept that's going up the agenda in the climate change talks, caused by climate change or humanitarian response. Just as America had a Marshall Plan for Europe at the end of the Second World War, we need a global Marshall-type plan that is equal to our biggest global challenges. Such a plan will, I believe, require a new global financial architecture. The Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and World Bank, might have been fit for the 20th century, but they're not doing a great job in the 21st. In a recent speech at the UN General Assembly, Assembly, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, who is rapidly becoming a superstar, can I just say, set out the ideas behind our nation's trailblazing Bridgetown agenda for radical reform of this global architecture. Hers is the sort of fresh thinking we now desperately need from every government. Third point, digital leapfrogging can change how development happens. Even though the rise of the digital economy has led to a huge accumulation of wealth and power by corporations, I'm an optimist. I believe digital transformation, and by the way, if you can hear drilling in the background, they're putting in cable um, broadband in my road, so very relevant. I believe digital transformation can drive accelerated and inclusive development in ways that leapfrog previous steps in development. Many organisations have been caught off guard by the sheer pace of change and innovations such as the gig economy. We now need to support people taking back control of such digital spaces to protect human rights and drive inclusive development. In Somalia, I came across a project where motorbikes have been offered to young displaced Somalis in an area of huge youth unemployment to do paid delivery jobs via a digital platform. Of course, the gig economy has problems, but it's also transforming, uh, transforming employment in many parts of the world. And I would argue organisations like ours need to find ways to generate fairer digital livelihoods. The human rights potential can be seen in a platform we supported in Bangladesh called Hello Task, where people book domestic staff. Workers using the platform have access to help if there's an emergency, as well as getting information about their rights. The result is domestic workers who were previously invisible and employed in the most informal way, paid in cash with no protection, now have visible work records and a named employer with obligations to them. Beyond this, we can boost the impact and success of social enterprises by investing in their digital development. All of this work is at an early stage, but it does seem 
as if young people in particular can leapfrog ahead economically in digital spaces. And I hope Oxfam can invest in and explore the huge possibilities there. All three of these challenges come against a global context that our founders might well recognise. One of squeezed space for progressive action, of war in Europe, of the rise of nationalism, of people deprived of life-saving medical care and an accumulation of wealth by elites, even as much of the globe languishes in poverty. As well as the new challenges, therefore, we also have an old one that links Oxfam's present to its 80-year past, to remind richer nations of their obligations to the whole of humanity to, in short, play our part to keep the flame of internationalism alive. Fine, fine words from Danny Shuskandaraja there. The last post uh, of the week was perhaps a little bit provincial, a little bit parochial to Britain. A couple of... Um, uh, recently, uh, some Just Stop Oil protesters threw tomato soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery. Um, and it generated a lot of publicity, but also a big debate over whether this was vandalism or smart protest. And Tom Aston, who thinks a lot about these issues, got in touch with me and said, do you want to edit down my longer piece on Medium? And I said, sure. So here it goes. In an interesting blog... James Osden criticises those talking heads in the UK who argued that disruptive protest is not the answer. I couldn't help but laugh at someone on Twitter who gave the action naught out of 10 for theory of change. But I guess the correct score rather depends what the question is. What was the goal? What are the expected outcomes? And how durable are these likely to be? For Osden, the key outcome seems to be to get you international media coverage and millions of people talking about you. Emma Jones of Just Stop Oil also said it works. It grabs people people's attention. And the soup thrower, Phoebe Plummer, fancy being known as a soup thrower. Anyway, Phoebe Plummer suggested that we're getting the conversation going so we can ask the questions that matter. So they seem to agree this direct action was about attention. I'm not at all convinced this is the most important outcome, but it frames the discussion. Austin argues that the presence of a radical flank increases support for a moderate faction within the same movement. The evidence is actually rather flimsy. I've got some further notes on that on his longer medium piece, if you're interested. In contrast, I first heard of Soupgate on Navara Media, an excellent left-wing media outfit that I recommend. I was expecting them to wholeheartedly embrace the direct action, but Aaron Bastani thought the tactics could prove potentially unwise by attracting the wrong kind of attention and might perhaps be poor strategy. Similarly, he criticised what he considered the thoughtless, stupid direct action, and that's in quotes, of Extinction Rebellion, when two members climbed on board a uh, on the top of a tube train and delayed London commuters. In his view, this was even less defensible because it interfe interfered with ordinary people going about their work rather than posh toffs like me going to art galleries. And then he links to a, a YouTube piece by Bastani um, uh, on that issue. But he points out that his co-host Michael Walker disagreed. It doesn't matter whether the public like the action. What matters is if the public care about your cause. And, and Tom says, I think that's a very astute point. Emmeline Pankhurst made a similar one. We don't intend that you should be pleased. He then suggested that perhaps the public might call into talk radio and say, their ends are valid, but I don't care about their means. Or for their means, anyway. Such public support could be helpful. So then, subhead, who's the audience? I suspect many people who argued that they got the tactics wrong are people like me. 
As a member at both the National Gallery and the Royal Academy, I don't like desecration of art, unless that is the art, uh, especially because it leads to protesters being misleadingly branded as uncultured, anti-culture barbarians. Of course, life is more important than art, but I have no idea why these are considered mutually exclusive. Moreover, I don't understand the targeting, do you? Why are art galleries the target and not, say, statues of all barons or disreputable politicians? And if you really want to attack the National Gallery, why not attack the Sackler Wing? There are better trophies to deface, more problematic histories to tell, and more nefarious funding to expose. Or go next door to the National Portrait Gallery, were it open, which ended BP sponsorship earlier this year, and do something celebratory. If there was a strategy, it wasn't clear to me. Emma Brown of Just Stop Oil and Austin later insisted that the radical flank theory was the strategy. Does public support matter? Well, Just Stop Oil's peers, Extinction Rebellion, has very low levels of public support in general. Nonetheless, it's also plausible, as Austin suggests, that they played at least some role in the wider increase in Britain saying that the environment is a top national issue, even if that role is probably overstated. Today, according to YouGov, only 26% of the public think the environment is the most important issue, far behind the economy at 67%. So Just Stop Oil does have an attention problem to address, and perhaps they do need to get the conversation going, as Plummer suggests. But will greater attention translate into influence? Which members of the public support or oppose probably matters at least as much as support from the general public. The media landscape is a key part of this. It matters relatively little whether Navarra media support you, I'm afraid. But as Austin suggests, if talk radio opinion leaders like James O'Brien admit they've changed their views on Extinction Rebellion, and there are opinion pieces written about them in the Times newspaper admitting they were right, then there's clear progress in the discourse. Beyond the politics of attention, though, what matters is what such attention translates into, and whether any of this is durable. Austin notes that even though Extinction Rebellion has some of the lowest public support, they seem to have caused an increase in UK climate concern, led to new environmental groups in over 1,100 cities, and probably significantly reduced UK carbon emissions. As Naomi Hussain reminded me, this might fit Tarot et al's argument on unity and numbers in their worthiness, unity, numbers and commitment conceptual framework for, what, uh, for, for success within a social movement. But what about the backlash? When Owen Jones asked whether this will provide a rationale for the government to clamp down on all forms of protest, Emma Jones uh, argued that I think we are putting government in a difficult position. Yet in direct response to Just Stop Oil's efforts over the last fortnight, departed Home Secretary Suella Braverman vowed to crack down on eco-zealots in the Public Order Bill. We already have hostile legislation on protests in the UK, and it seems this direct action will amplify the tenuous justifications from the Home Secretary regarding supposed public interest. The Home Secretary brought forward an amendment with harsher sentences for protesters on the 18th of October. The two protesters themselves have been charged to pay £5,000 in damages. So if Just Stop Oil's target were government policy, the action probably backfired in the short term. A large recent study on key protest issues in the 21st century found backlash in most cases. So the trade-offs are a legitimate concern more broadly. Whether raising public attention through direct action translates into significant policy change 
for the better over the medium term is still a matter for reasonable debate. We should be debating whether Just Stop Oil's tactics fit within a coherent strategy or not, as Bastani suggests. We should be assessing their theory of change and the underlying radical flank theory itself. We should also be asking questions about the relative costs and benefits. And this direct action allows us to do that. There's no question that it has raised public attention, but only time will tell whether Soupgate contributes to greater concern over an existential cause and whether that translates into any meaningful policy change in the UK. If indeed it does work, we'll have to rethink plenty of ideas about what works in campaigning and those pesky theories of change. Nice thoughtful examination of theory and practice, in this case, the practice of throwing soup over uh, great, great paintings. Uh, by the way, the painting was not damaged. It was behind glass. You know, everyone should be clear about that. So that generated some good comments. Uh, all this week, actually, there have been some really good comments. I think people are back on the blog and back at work and thinking hard. So uh, thanks to everybody who commented. Do go on the blog and read the comments. Have a great weekend. Let's see you as Prime Minister next week. Bye.